Welcome to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and I'm proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Every episode of this podcast will bring in a variety of experts to help all writers incorporate more authentic cops, crime, and criminals in their stories. For this episode, best-selling author Louise Jensen steps into the interrogation room to clear up a few things about her writing. Louise has sold over a million English-language copies of her international number one psychological thrillers, The Sister, The Gift, The Surrogate, and The Date. Her novels are translated into 25 languages and have appeared on the USA Today and Wall Street Journal bestsellers list. The Sister was nominated for the Goodreads debut of 2016. The Date was nominated for the Guardian's Not the Booker Prize in 2018. The Surrogate has been nominated for the Best Polish Thriller of 2018, and The Gift has been optioned for television and film. Welcome to Writers on the Beat, Louise. Thank you for joining us. Hello, Gavin. Thanks so much for asking me. In reading through your your bio, I love that you explained your family resides with a rather naughty cat and a madcap dog. I'd love to start using madcap in my everyday speech, but I think I should first find out exactly what that means across the pond. <laughs> it means it's a little bit naughty. He doesn't exactly do what he should. Well, I'm reading the, the date right now, and you've done an excellent work with this book. This story and your main character grabbed me right from the first page. And for readers who are new to you in this title, what do you want them to know about the date? The Date is a story about a girl called Ali, and she's recently separated from her husband and her friends set her up on a blind date via the internet. And um, she wakes up the morning after the date and she can't remember anything. And when she looks in the mirror, she can't recognise herself. And it's centred around a condition called prosopagnosia, which is also known as face blindness. And um, yeah, so somebody is stalking her after her date, but everybody looks like a stranger and she doesn't know how to identify them. So there's, uh, interestingly enough, I interviewed a, another author a few months back, uh, Rebecca Bradley, who's also a, out of the UK. She's a retired inspector. Mm-hmm. Um, and she wrote a book called uh, Dead Blind about this this same, uh, same illness. And I, by happenstance, have a, a friend afflicted with it. And ah. it's really in- incredible to me that this is starting to starting to gain some uh, some notoriety among uh, among writers because it's a really fascinating illness. Yeah, I mean, I came across it. I was watching a children's TV channel here with my children, and it featured a documentary about a girl called Hannah Reed. And Hannah was thirteen, and she had a cold sore, and the virus went into her brain. And uh, like Ali, she just suddenly couldn't recognize herself, couldn't recognize her family. And Hannah was diagnosed with the worst known case of prosopagnosia in the UK. And the the documentary followed her journey from kind of shortly after diagnosis to how she adjusted to her new life. And and it was so distressing to watch her. You know, they put Mm -hmm. her in a room with her parents and she couldn't identify them. And um, it just stayed with me, both both as a person, I suppose, and as a parent, thinking, how would I feel if my children couldn't recognise me? And how would they cope with that extreme change? And I thought about Hannah constantly, really, for about a year. And then I thought, I, I need to write a story based on this. Yeah, and when I, when I started reading The Date, um, as, as well as you crafted this story and, and wrote this character, the, the words in her experience immediately grabbed me as, as a reader. And um, and I guess a little bit of, of personal disclosure, I mm-hmm. assumed during the, the first couple chapters 
that that she had been drugged and that you know something really really devious had happened to her yeah. and um writing or i guess feeling a little bit from a personal experience i had in in rome a lifetime ago i uh ingested what i imagine was ghb that i think was intended for um, a girl who was in our group um she had gone uh-huh. to the bar in this club uh, to get uh, some drinks for us and it was very early in the night and the next thing that I remember, it's like five in the morning and I can't see right and I don't know where I am. Mm-hmm. And thankfully, you know, I, I had been with other people the whole time. So, you know, nothing happened to me. But as I was reading the date, all of that kind of came rushing back and the, the terror of not knowing what happened and not knowing where you've been. It, it was it was really well documented. You did a fantastic job with that. Thank you. I think I think it's a frightening world, isn't it, in many ways. And as a parent with children that are old enough to go out drinking, mm-hmm. that's yes. something I'm very aware of. You, know, I always tell them, don't leave your drink unattended. And if you start yeah. to feel ill, you must go and tell mm-hmm. somebody. And yeah, it's it's um something I think about. <laughs> and we've talked about what inspired the date, but what inspires your writing in general? Uh, well, I always wanted to be a writer when I was younger, and I used to write little stories and books and illustrate them myself. <laughs> and when I came to leave school, I, I told my careers advisor that I wanted to be an author, and she just said, that's ridiculous, you can't make a living out of writing. And um, mm-hmm. and this was in the 80s, so we didn't have home computers and Google, and I couldn't really find out how to be a writer. And universities at that time were for the very rich and there wasn't degrees in creative writing like there is now so I kind of said to her what what should I do and she said go and work in an office and then you'll have regular hours and you'll be home in time to make your husband's dinner and <laughs> so <laughs> oh, yeah no. oh, wow. um, and I just didn't know how how to be a writer so I just I did go and work in an office for many many years and um when I got into my 30s, I'd had a family by then and had my own business and my own house and, and life was really good. And I had a car accident and it, it exacerbated a pre-existing condition as well as causing some new damage. And, and I lost my mobility completely and ended up in a wheelchair oh, no. for quite a few years. And um, mm-hmm. it's not a very happy story. This one. It has a good end. So bear with me. <laughs> um, oh, absolutely. And I became really, really depressed and um and in the end, the doctor said, you know, you need a hobby. You need something to keep your mind off yourself. Because I was constantly worried about, you know, how the future was going to be for me and in, in so much pain. And, um, and I remembered how much I enjoyed writing. And I thought, well, that's something I don't need to be able to walk for. So I started a short story and just completely fell in love with my two characters, Grace and Charlie, and, and their friendship. And just wrote and wrote and wrote and, and it ended up kind of a hundred thousand words and it's it became my debut wow. book the sister now i've recently spoken with uh, some, some other psychological thriller writers from uh, karen cleveland to kate hollahan and, and rj jacobs and it, it seems that most of their stories deal with what uh, me and my fellow coppers would call an insider threat uh, betrayal by someone in a position of trust. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's a, a key element of, of all psychological thrillers or is that just something that's kind of consistent among several? I think it's something that's quite relatable to people. I think if people can put themselves in a position, you know, readers and think, oh, wow, that could happen to me. That's that's kind of the hook with thrillers. So, yeah, I think that that's quite frequently the way people write. 
It, it also seems a lot of folks that write in that genre tend to write standalones. And I wonder, since a lot of the advice that's given to writers who are working their way up the mountain are just trying to become published, a lot of the advice seems to center around, you know, write in series, create a character long-term that readers can fall in love with. But in this specific genre, it seems like that's just not done. Do you, do you see that there are obstacles to writing in series with psychological thrillers? Yeah, uh, publishers don't want to publish them. <laughs> that's the obstacle. I think when you're writing police procedures, people love the same characters to return, but with psychological thrillers, that, that's not the case. Um, I had a follow-up book in mind for The Sister, and when I got, I got a three-book mm-hmm. deal originally, and I said to my editor, this is kind of what I'd like to do for the second book as a follow-up, and she just said, no, it just doesn't work with psychological thrillers. People don't come back to them in the way that they do with kind of police procedures. Wow. Yeah. Well, and having to write all new characters and an all new story every time in this genre, then how do you go about researching your books and and your topics and your inspirations? I love the research. It's one of my favorite things to do. And it's it's a good way to to waste a lot of time sometimes. Um, I pick subjects that I'm interested in. So my, my book, The Gift, which will be out with you guys next spring, is all about the concept of cellular memory. Uh, the idea that when wow. we transplant an organ into somebody, particularly a heart, it can retain the mm-hmm. memories of the donor. And um, I'd, I'd read this story in a paper about a lady that had a heart transplant and woke up speaking fluent Russian. And just That's thought, fascinating. Wow. And, and got online. And, and there were so many stories of, um, you know, a boy that could suddenly play piano to concert standard. And, um, and then I read wow. the story about this little girl that, broke my heart she'd had a heart transplanted from another little girl who'd been murdered and um, this girl started having nightmares about being murdered and they were so vivid her her mum took her to a psychologist and after listening to her she said I think we need to go to the police and um, and the police did listen and, and take down descriptions and details and they actually managed to catch the murderer based on this girl's account and I just That's thought, wow, amazing. I need to write a book about this. So, yeah, I spent many happy, happy months really researching that. And, and even now, I, I still do kind of keep up to date with what's going on in that field. You know, it's it's really interesting because in the, in the field of kind of trauma research and counseling and psychology, you hear of trauma can dramatically impact people to the point that they pass their trauma on to their future generations. Mm. Uh, this seems like a, a really related topic that, you know, if, if these folks can suddenly play piano and speak Russian and experience nightmares of a real murder that happened, we must all be uh, so much more connected to our, ourselves and our, our children than, than we imagine. Yeah, I think we are. I think it was a, it was a state that doctors and scientists didn't take very seriously. But more and more, there are more medical professionals now thinking that there is something to this that the heart can restore memories, and it's it's kind of a second brain almost. So they're researching it all the time, and it's quite exciting because we don't know everything, and um, yeah, no. there's new discoveries all the time. So can't wait to see really what what they find out. No, that's one of the things that I absolutely love about getting the chance to talk to authors like yourself who are, are really writing very successfully and putting together these fascinating stories. You create a tremendous number of writing prompts for me. Oh. <laughs> and, you know, at one time, I generally have you know five to seven very different novel ideas about things that I would like to write and plots that I would like to put in. And 
this idea of, you know, inherited trauma or, you know, cellular memory like that. I have a little bit of a background in in chemistry and Mm -hmm. uh, biochemistry, and that's just instantly fascinating to me that I'm going to have to dive in. I'll probably lose a month of my life to research (laughs) in a book I'm never going to write, but it's going to be fascinating. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. Has there ever been a, a moment in your writing where your research changed a character or a story that you had intended to write? Um, yeah, I think I think all the time. I think with the date, it was really hard to know how to approach it because I wanted to be so respectful of Hannah and what she'd been through. Um, I'm very conscious that although I write books that are entertainment, um, mm-hmm. scenarios I write about are real life for some people. They've all been through these, these things that I, I write and I always want to be very, very sensitive. So, yeah, I think particularly exploring the emotional side of health conditions and finding out different things definitely reflects the way that my characters act and the the way the plot changes as I write. As you're writing, I I wonder what your view is on point of view. If you consciously decide how to present your stories or if the characters make that decision for you in the the way that they arrive in your your mind. Yeah, I mean, I, I write in first person present tense mainly but I, I do bring in other characters. I, I think the thing with books is each book I try to structure in a different way. So the one I'm currently working on right now, I've got, I think I've got about five different viewpoints, which I've never done before. And also a lot of it is in third person, which I've never done before. But I think it just really suits the story. So I think it, I just write what feels natural for that character and that and that plot. And um, if I have to change it, I have to change it. Uh, my, my first book, The Sister, I wrote the entire book in past tense. And when I read it back, I thought, oh, no, I think it would just be more immediate in present tense. So I thought, I'll just alter it. Um, yes. had no idea <laughs> how huge a task that was. I remember saying to my husband, he said, do you want to go out for lunch? And I said, I'm just going to alter my book into present tense and then we'll go. And about two yeah. weeks later, I was still doing it. That is almost like writing a debut novel over and over again and, and really stretching your capabilities as a writer. That's very Thank impressive. You. I think in a way I was just stalling because I love the character so much. I just didn't want the experience to end. So anything I could change and keep mm-hmm. going back to, I did. <laughs> <laughs> I think Hemingway had it right that writing is never finished. It's only ever abandoned. And uh, a lot of times we have trouble abandoning the ones that we really love and really like most. Yeah, I, th- I think once you've got deadlines and you've got an editor taking it off you, it's it's a bit easier yes. to let it go. But yeah, left to my own devices, I just keep tinkering. When the editors forever. come in and kidnap your children, yes. Yeah, <laughs> time to let go. Once a story or a topic inspires you to write, what is your creative process like? Do you outline and plot or do you write from the seat of your pants without a roadmap? My creative process is panic, generally. Um, (laughs) Lots of anxiety and bottles of wine. Um, I can't plot. And I've bought so many books and online courses the last couple of years Mm -hmm. about learning to plot because I always feel that if I knew that there was a complete story and where it was going, it would be a lot calmer and a lot more enjoyable process because I do find first drafts quite hard. Um, But I I just can't get my mind to think ahead that way. So I tend to think think of a concept, do my research, write the first three chapters to see how it feels. And then I just, I just skip about if I think of a dramatic scene that might come near the end. I just, Mm -hmm. I don't write in order ever. Um, so yeah, I just write general scenes and then at the end I try to piece them all together 
into a coherent story. When did you know that you wanted to write? And, and what was your first book or short story that you, you actually put together? I knew I wanted to write as soon as I could read, really. I just I just loved stories. And at primary school, we were allowed to take one book home a week from the library. And mm-hmm. they let me take home as many books as I wanted because I just read them all the time. And I was very respectful of them. I, you know, I don't turn down the corners of the pages. Yes. And, um, yeah, quite a young age. There's a series called The Famous Five by a writer called Enid Blyton. Um, about these children and their dog who solved these mysteries. And I was obsessed wow. with them. And I, I just wanted yes. i wanted to be one of the famous five, but I wrote my own series of books called The Fabulous Five. <laughs> to, <laughs> and, and I drew drew the, the characters and, and sellotaped them together and, and sold them to my family at a very young age. Um, but, yeah, I, I knew it was what I wanted to do. I, I liked that sense of mystery, and that what's going to happen and are they going to escape um and then when i was a little bit older i read little women um oh that's a fantastic book yeah i found my mum my mum doesn't read my family don't read at all but she had a box of books in the in the garage from her school days and little women was one of them and i sat in the garage and started reading it and i just didn't move till i'd finished and i cried and and I didn't know then that stories could make you feel that emotion as well. You know, I knew that they could make you feel excited, but I didn't know they could make you feel sad. And and um and I just thought I want to write a book that makes people feel all of those things. So although I write psychological thrillers, there's always a kind of strong emotional strand running through it as well because I want people to feel everything. <laughs> yeah. And Little Women is such an important and powerful story. And we got to go a, f- a few years ago to uh, tour Louisa May Alcott's home. And wow. we picked up a, a copy of, of Little Women from the bookstore there uh, for my niece, who uh, is now uh, eight. And, you know, it's probably a, a couple of years before she's really ready to read it. But I'm really excited for, for her and, and, and how that uh, hopefully will give her some uh, some sense of uh, sense of empowerment. Yeah, to this day, it remains absolutely my favorite book, and, and Joe March is my heroine. Do you remember the the moment that you realized that you could write, and that people other than your mother and your family wanted to hear and read what you had to say? My English teacher at primary school used to love my stories, and always used to tell me I could be a writer if you know if I just didn't give up. And um, he really, yes. he really gave me such a lot of encouragement. And um, but then when I got to high school, that kind of stopped. It was the focus was on you know maths and and more academic things than the creativity. And um, and I lost, I lost that encouragement. I think so. I didn't really realize I could write until until I had my accident and I wrote the sister. And when I'd finished writing it, I couldn't believe I'd written a book. And I read it back and I knew the minute I read it that it was probably the worst book ever written. (laughs) But I could see what was wrong with it and how I could make it better. And that was when I thought, ah, you know, maybe I've got something here. Would you then count your 
primary English teacher as, as your first writing mentor, or do you think someone Absolutely. else filled that role? Last week, um, my school had a reunion because it had been open for 50 years, and I went back, I donated all my books to their library, and I went back to see if I could find him just to say thank you, um, but he was one of the teachers that didn't come, so I don't know where oh. he is to this day, but I mean, he's credited on my website, I think I owe him, I owe him a lot, if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't have had that belief in myself. No, I, I really think that without mentors, without guiding lights kind of cast throughout our lives, uh, I think we would all have a very hard time, especially as, as creatives, yeah. in having the, the confidence and the, the inspiration to, to do these things. Yeah, and I think we all have that memory of our one special teacher, don't we? <laughs> one of the recurring themes of this podcast is that it generally only takes folks about a decade of nonstop and consistent blood, sweat, and tears to become an overnight success. Mm-hmm. Uh, what has your journey been like from inspiration to published writer to, to best-selling author? I've been really lucky. I, I know um, The Sister was the first thing I ever wrote. Um, and it, yeah, it got picked up quite quickly as well. And then it, it was published quite quickly because I, initially I had a digital only contract. Um, so I did get the inevitable rejections, <laughs> as you do. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. But I'd say I think I finished it in the autumn and it was published by the next summer. Well, that's almost record time for the publishing industry. That is that is definitely a fast track. Yeah, I think digital publishers are very, very quick. Do you have a, a favorite fictional detective or investigator in TV, books, or film that you're currently reading or watching? Uh, no, I don't really read kind of detective books. I, I don't know if we can count the TV show Magnum P.I. with Tom Oh, absolutely. I, that was yeah. my favorite yes. show growing up. And, um, and Charlie's yes. Angels. I, I wanted to be Charlie's yep. Angel and solve the crime. Yeah, we were, uh, my wife and I are um, kind of documentary nerds. And we recently watched a documentary on Farrah Fawcett and about how, you know, that her life and, and her involvement in that show and, you know, a lot of the ways that, that she stood up for herself in Hollywood ended up kind of giving her a little bit of a black eye and a negative negative mm-hmm. reputation. But in reality, she simply was a woman who didn't allow people to ride roughshod over her. Oh, and okay. it uh, was a, a really fascinating story about how, you know, she very effectively stood up for herself and, and what she believed in. It was pretty incredible. Yeah, I'd like to see that. She was an amazing, amazing and strong with fabulous hair. Yes. Yeah. Fabulous hair. And, and even you know, when she came out and you know, publicly talked about her cancer diagnosis, like a, you know, a very, very brave woman. Oh, yeah. I'd forgotten about that. Yeah, absolutely. Keeping that last answer in mind, Louise, I ask this of everyone, especially the authors who come on my show, but God forbid it should come to pass. But mm-hmm. if you were to wake up tomorrow and find yourself murdered, would you want Magna P.I. or another fictional investigator or revenge artist taking your case? Oh, that's difficult. Um, I think Charlie's Angels would have to reunite. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> go out there and find them. <gasps> yes, we'll get the, the band back together and <laughs> they can go out and, and, uh, and apprehend the bad man. What's your current work in progress that, uh, that you've got on the typewriter now? Well, I've just wrapped up a book called The Family that will be out here later in this year. Uh, which is about a commune, actually, it's a bit... We were watching the news and a, a lot of stuff comes from family discussions and my my young son said, you know, why, why do terrorists do bad things and why do some people do bad things? Are they bad or, 
you know, are they born that way or does somebody make them that way? And we started researching mm. brainwashing together. And, and I kind of thought, what if I had a situation and put two vulnerable women in the same situation with somebody that was trying to influence them? How would they both act? You know, what if what if one got sucked into it and the other one didn't? And what if they were mother and daughter? So um, oh, I have this wow. Laura and Tilly, mother and daughter in this commune, and, and Laura realises something is very, very wrong and wants to leave, but Tilly is completely enthralled by the by the leader, Alex, and, and doesn't want to go. So it's a book very much about relationships and about the mother trying to save the daughter, but, but Tilly's 17 and she believes she doesn't need saving, <laughs> as we do at that wow. age. Uh, yes, yeah, it's it's been it's been a, it's been good to write, and yeah, just just finished that, so just starting something new now. So that sounds absolutely fantastic, and I'm immediately enthralled with the idea. I I wonder as a as a free follow up, who do you imagine portraying those two characters when the movie comes to the big screen? Oh, I haven't thought about that. I don't know. I'm a huge fan of Drew Barrymore. Actually, she would be great as Laura. Um, I'm not too sure about the daughter. I'd, I'd have to try and find somebody that looked a bit like Drew, I think. Well, I greatly appreciate you making time to, to stop in and, and talk with us about your craft and your writing. This has been Thanks an exceptional that. interview, and I'm really, really very grateful for the introduction to your work. It's been great. Thank you, Gavin. You've been listening to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters, a copyrighted broadcast of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and this episode's guest has been international best-selling author Louise Jensen. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. Be safe out there.